right, um, please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going through just a couple of studies in the middle chapters, two chapters of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in chapter 3, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul sets forth the power and the glory of the New Covenant ministry as the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that New Covenant experience given to every single believer is summed up in verse 18 at the end of chapter 3, uh, which we considered last week, how we all beholding the glory of Christ are being changed from one degree of glory to another. As opposed to the Old Covenant that can only bring death and condemnation if left to itself in the letter alone, the gospel comes now in the power of the Spirit in order to impart life and glory to God's people to transform human hearts and lives from within. And so chapter 4 goes on then to speak of the context in which uh, that glorious work is taking place, the context in which the gospel is proclaimed and the Christian life is lived out, and we'll discover that it is full of profound and puzzling paradoxes. Uh, these paradoxes are spelled out and juxtaposed throughout our passage. Uh, they filled uh, the Apostle Paul's own experience, in light of which Paul uh, lays down the very burden of the chapter, which will bookend our whole chapter, chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says in verses 1 and 16, uh, we do not lose heart. It's indicating that without the truth of God's word grounding his thinking, uh, Paul was profoundly tempted to lose heart. Well, what is the antidote uh, against uh, losing heart in the Christian life? Well, we'll go on to consider uh, this evening. We'll read verses 7 through 18 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, let's give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, saw, and, so I saw, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Thus far this reading in God's word, let's look to our God and seek his help and blessing once again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we set our eyes on that eternal glory uh, you have called every one of your child to the new heavens and the new earth where the tree of life stands and the trees along the rivers of God are yielding fruit every moment with healings uh, available from its leaves. And so even in the preaching of the scriptures, we would taste and see the power of your grace, the goodness and mercy flowing from our Lord Jesus Christ. You would strengthen us and you would increase our faith. You'd help us to see the present in light of eternity and so live accordingly and to help us to uh, build for eternity in all the things that we do. May the life of Jesus be manifested in our mortal flesh, and may his grace and power uh, be displayed and magnified in our lives as we abide in you uh, through faith. So bless your people and strengthen us, we pray. We ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, undoubtedly, the Apostle Paul uh, at times was tempted to lose heart in his apostolic ministry. Being discouraged, uh, growing weary and tired, being tempted to lose heart are not unknown phenomena among Christian believers. Uh, Far from it, in fact, discouragement may be the chief occupational hazard of being a Christian believer living in this world, engaged in any form of Christian service. Uh, It's all because we are not in heaven yet. There are glorious realities we are told about, yet we are still living in this enemy-occupied territory. The Christian life, therefore, is a battle to be fought and a race to be run. The new has already come upon the believer, but the old has not yet passed away. We do live in the overlap of the ages that introduces uh, this situation of tension and ambiguity and paradox and contrast and even warfare. The gospel is a power of God unto salvation. We believe and confess that. And yet the human hearts are blind and hardened in unbelief. Frequently in response to the gospel, we do see that all around us. The church has been established as a city of God, yet the gates of Hades are still gapingly open and Satan is tirelessly active in the minds and lives of his people. Christ reigns and the word of God is unleashed, but the love of many grows cold in response to the word preached. The spirit indwells us, and yet sin still remains in us. We are co-heirs with Christ, destined for glory, and yet we are not immune to sufferings and struggles of this age. We rejoice and glory in Christ. We have been filled with joy unspeakable, yet at the same time our hearts groan inwardly. There are notes of sadness and even at times despair, and our bodies are frail and full of aches and subject to weakness. We are being changed into glory, but outwardly we are decaying. There are no signs of youth and vigor springing up as time goes. It is to the contrary. And Paul describes something of this Christian paradox in a way that, if not grounded in the truth of the gospel, would easily lead one indeed to lose heart and lose all bearings, in fact, living in this world. And notice how Paul does this personally, especially in verses 8 through 10 where the apostles are almost pictured as defeated warriors on the battlefield, made spectacles, and yet continuing on only by the upholding hand of the commander. Paul says they are pressed, 
hard pressed and perplexed and pressured and persecuted and struck down and distressed. They are weak, they are frail, and they are beaten down. They are continually being given over to death for Jesus' sake. They are in the process of protracted dying, as it were. Outwardly, uh, they have nothing to show for. There are so many reasons for the apostles to lose heart. And yet they are not crushed. They are not driven to despair. They are not forsaken. They are destroyed. They are not destroyed. In their mortal bodies, the life of Jesus is manifested. For all the reasons to lose heart, there are always greater reasons for taking heart, and there are always greater reasons to take heart. And Paul says in verse 13, quoting from Psalm 116, verse 10, Paul declares, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. Despite what the eye can see, Paul says, echoing the psalmist, I believe, so I spoke. The Apostle Paul proclaimed the truth of the gospel by faith. And whenever we ourselves come to God's word, we are to do so in faith. We speak God's word out of faith. Paul, despite his personal experiences, yet in faith declared the truth of God, I believed, so also I spoke. And we see that even in the account provided in the book Acts of the Apostles, we read in Acts chapter 18, during Paul's 18-month-long ministry at Corinth, Acts chapter 18 tells us that an angel had to appear at night in order to encourage Paul and to try to encourage him to press on and to keep speaking despite all the discouragements, for there are many in the city, the angel of the Lord said. Keep speaking so that they may be saved. And the apostle needed an angelic visitation in order to be encouraged in his gospel ministry. And so like David did in Psalm 116, and if you read Psalm 116, you see David being in thorough distress. He suffered anguish. The cords of Sheol wrapped around him. David declares the pangs of death, as it were, stared at him right in his face. He cried out to the Lord. He believed even as he spoke. And the psalmist declares that the Lord kept his eyes from tears, delivered his soul from death, and restored his feet from stumbling. David, in faith, was led to the house of God to lift up the cup of salvation in praise and thanksgiving even before he saw that deliverance coming in fullness. And Paul, we read in verse 13, having the same faith of, a spirit of faith, uh, even according to what has been written, says, I believed, so I also spoke. Now the ESV in verse 13 translates the spirit as the lowercase s. Uh, just like David, Paul, and also we, the saints, we have been brought to that believing frame of mind, the spirit of faith, that gracious frame of soul whereby we believe whatsoever is written in God's word and we are enabled to speak. But of course, the spirit of faith in the believer is the work of God's spirit. It's the work of God's grace in the hearts of his children wrought in us by the Holy Spirit who is the spirit 
of faith. The Holy Spirit imparts faith in us so that we believe and we speak. And whenever our believers are tempted to doubt and tempted to lose heart, uh, we are brought to faith and therefore we affirm the truthfulness of God's word and we take those truths upon our lips and we declare the word to be true. When the spirit of faith, the Holy Spirit, illumines what is written to us so that he makes God's word come alive with power and conviction and a new degree of certainty, then we are able to understand life and everything we face in this life in light of the truthfulness of God's word. And it's the exact same logic we saw this morning in John chapter 14, where we saw the remedy and antidote for uh, troubled hearts to be the Lord Jesus himself. The remedy is the truth of God who raises the dead, is the greatness of Jesus Christ declared in the gospel in whom we believe. And here Paul, taking up the same frame of faith, enabled by the Spirit of God, even the experiences that seem to contradict the truth uh, in faith declares God's truth and says, I believe, so I also speak. And this is not unique to the Apostle Paul. This has been the keynote of the life of faith all throughout redemptive history. You see, for example, this exact same emphasis in the minor prophet Habakkuk. Perhaps the Apostle Paul's favorite verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, the righteous shall live by faith. And if you step back, and what is Habakkuk exploring? The whole book of Habakkuk is really raising the question, how do peop the people of God live through great trials when Babylon is about to invade the nation of Israel? How do the people of God live through great trials? And the answer that Habakkuk gives is, by faith in God who is great, by faith in a God who has spoken, by faith in a God, who raises Jesus from the dead. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's the kind of spirit of faith that uh, Paul is taking upon himself. And having the same spirit of faith, Paul says, we believe and we speak. And that same spirit is given to every single believer living in this world, especially in the face of temptation to uh, discouragement and losing heart. Now notice quickly three things about this spirit of faith by which we are to live. Uh, I want you to see in the remainder of time something of the priority of the spirit of faith and the perspective of the spirit of faith and the pattern of the spirit of faith as we draw uh, this study to a close and apply the truth to our hearts. What is the priority that the spirit of faith has when you truly believe what is written? When faith is granted to you by the spirit, what is the priority in your life? And the priority is simply expressed throughout uh, this whole chapter, the priority found in the very glory of God. When it is the spirit of faith giving you faith, the priority of that faith will always be placed upon the glory of God. Earlier in the chapter, we see the light of God's glory shining in the heart through the gospel so that anyone who comes to faith is in response to the light of glory shining in the dark heart. So we have believed by faith in the gospel, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you are brought to Jesus Christ, everything about your life subsequent to conversion is either in service of the glory of God and or in pursuit of the glory of God. And notice how Paul expresses that even in verse 15 of our passage, that whatever we suffer as apostles, 
are all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, as Christ is proclaimed, as the grace of God in truth is declared, Paul says, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Although Paul sees many experiences, sufferings, and rejection, and yet his faith is firmly fixed on that end goal and priority of faith, which is the glory of God. As people are saved to the glory of God, Paul is once again placing his heart and faith in that decreed purpose of God, which is all for his glory. And even as we are inwardly changed from glory to glory, we are told at the end of our chapter, it is by faith alone that we understand that all the light momentary afflictions that we face in life, all the sufferings and trials are actively working in us an eternal weight of glory. Now that's the faith that finds its priority in the glory of God. And speaking of Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4, Paul once again sounds this note describing what Abraham did in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist so that no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. Well, but listen to this. Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Well, if you are believers being strengthened in your faith, your priority will be placed upon the glory of God. That's the faith's priority, the spirit of faith that Paul is speaking of. And then secondly, I want you to see the perspective that the spirit of faith has. The faith that Paul speaks of is a faith that sees. It has a perspective, and that perspective is upon things eternal, things unseen. Verse 18, Paul says, we look not to the things that are seen, not to the things that are transient, but to things that are unseen, which are eternal. If you are filled with the spirit of faith, the saving faith in the Lord Jesus, then it is a faith that sees, faith that does not lose sight, but what you are comprehending with the eyes of faith are the things that are and cannot be um, seen, the things that are eternal. And without that faith, uh, with, that's what ultimately leads to a life that is filled with vanity of vanities. All the things in this visible world are ultimately not eternal. And if you do not have a faith that sees that which is um, unseen, uh, your life is ultimately filled with vanity and vanities. And yet the spirit of faith that sees uh, is a spirit that sees things eternal, imperishable. And just think of all the lifestyle and perspective of the people of God in Hebrews chapter 11 whether it's concerning the work of creation. By faith, we understand that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power. Or whether it be the example of Abraham, once again, who lived looking forward to that city that cannot be seen yet, whose builder and designer is God. Or whether it's the example of Noah, uh, simply building the ark according to the commandment of God under the great ridicule of the people around him. Or Moses, despising the pleasures, fleeting pleasures of Egypt, seeing him who is invisible. The spirit of faith, uh, its perspective, 
is always going to place on things that are eternal things that are unseen. It's because faith is going to uh, fix his eyes upon Jesus. And you cannot see Jesus yet. Although you do not see him, yet you believe in him. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And in that spirit of faith, believers set their hearts and affections on things above, not on the worldly, on the transient things. Faith fixes its eyes upon the unseen, the Lord Jesus, things that are above, things that yet cannot be touched with the hand. And faith has at its end, directing all its attention, desires, and efforts to that glorious end, which is eternal weight of glory. Notice again how Paul works this out in verse 17. There are two realities juxtaposed in verse 17. This light momentary affliction. And yet, that reality on the one hand is leading to another reality yet yet not seen, which is an eternal weight of glory. The affliction is light, but the glory will be weighty. This suffering will be momentary, but the glory will be eternal. It will be affliction and suffering, but in the end, what it produces is glory. Paul is not speaking merely of chronological uh, connection there, suffering now and glory. Paul is actually talking about a causal connection. Sufferings and afflictions, every experience that would tempt God's people to lose heart in this world are actually causing within you the growth of the weight of the eternal weight of glory. If you have the Hebrew mindset as Paul did, he is actually making a word play because the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, actually um, literally means weight. Paul is essentially saying eternal weight of weight that awaits you And this is not some meritorious cause, but procuring cause, as one writer said. You're not meriting glory by your sufferings, but all the things that you experience in the Christian life that cause you to to be tempted to lose heart are procuring for you in faith an eternal weight of glory. There is eternity um, for you, and faith's perspective is to see eternity Uh, to to see the present in light of eternity, to see the present experience in light of the truth of what eternity holds for God's people. So that's the second thing, perspective on the spirit of faith, and that is the life of faith all the way down through the ages until the day of glory. The perspective of the spirit of faith. Then finally, thirdly and finally, I want you to see the pattern that emerges in this spirit of faith, and that pattern is simply is death and life. It's a resurrection life out of death. The spirit of faith uh, always has a pattern worked in God's people, and that's death and resurrection, because we have been by faith united to Jesus, who has been risen from the dead. And notice how Paul works this note through and through. Uh, he describes the human instruments and servants as earthen vessels in verse 7, a weak, brittle disposable and replaceable jars of clay in which the treasure of the gospel has been placed. They are earthen vessels. They are utterly breakable. 
they are weak? Or why are they chosen instruments in which the gospel is given and placed? And Paul says it is so that the surpassing power might be displayed as coming from God and not from us. And again, Paul says in verse 12, in our mortal flesh, in our body that is subject to death, the resurrection life of Jesus is made manifest. And that is you, believers. That is you, united to Jesus. The Christian life is the life of Jesus being manifested in the weakness of your flesh. The Spirit giving life to your mortal flesh, once in service to sin, but now filled with the Spirit, living in service to Jesus Christ in the power of the resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in the context of a mortal life. And Paul says down in verse 14 and 15, one day I speak convinced that even he who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Oh, that's the life of faith in the gospel. You're sustained by the assurance that the life of Christ has secured your life. And if Jesus rose, then he should also raise you as well. And even in the mortal flesh, that life has begun to be expressed. And the more and more you suffer for the sake of Christ, the more glorious uh, you will be when that glory comes. The more and more you experience afflictions, the more weightier the eternal weight of glory will be for you. And now, giving over to death, but life is still at work. And Paul uh, works the pattern in every area of Christian living. And brothers and sisters, in your day-to-day living, tomorrow as you step into your workplace, uh, you are once united to Jesus who is risen. Although your body is decaying outwardly, inwardly you are being renewed day by day with the life of the Lord Jesus. Although sin remains in you, but the risen life of Christ is at work through your mortal body in all the members to make you servants of Christ. And so Paul has the spirit of faith, spirit of faith that fixes itself on the glory of God as it looks to the things not seen but unseen as it is united to Christ, once dead but now risen to die no more, and the life of Christ is at work in you. So Paul concludes, because of that spirit of faith, not only that we do not lose heart, but Paul will say, if you look, glance down in the next chapter, verse eight, uh, 6 and verse 8, he positively can say, therefore we are always of good courage. Not only do we not lose heart, but we are positively of good courage. We are convinced. We take heart because the spirit of faith is at work in us. I believe, therefore I speak. That's what keeps you from losing heart in the Christian life. That's what enables you to stand firm, to press on, to walk by faith, knowing that he who was risen from the dead also lives in you. May God give us abundantly the spirit of faith, especially in moments of temptation to discouragement. Uh, May God encourage your heart with the very life of the Lord Jesus, who has called you to glory. Let's pray together.